This morning's reading is from Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. After his return from the defeat of Keterlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anner, Eshcol, and Mamre take their share. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dawn. Well, in a lot of ways, the Dinau weekend, whose emphasis was identity, was actually... Unidentified was the name of the series, but the idea was that you unidentify with the world and that you identify with Christ instead. And it was providential that this is the text that our students spent most of the weekend listening to, because this kind of is to be a free encore to the topic, to the theme in a way. We are going to get to talk about identity a little bit in this text. If you were with us last week, Dave, uh, Daniel, when he preached, he left off a challenge for us, an exhortation, to take a few minutes every day and claim the promises that the Lord has given to us, specifically in relation to the call that God put on Abram's life. That call was a homeland, it was a people, and it was a promise. So Daniel encouraged us to consider as we go through our week and go through our life, what are the promises that God has made for us and are we going to claim them? He warned us not to claim just any random thing that we want or think is good, but to claim the things God has already promised and we'll find good success there. So I'm curious, by show of hand, did anybody do that this week? All right, a few people did. Good. I'm really curious to find out if that was successful and how it, how it benefited you, but we'll talk, we'll talk after. I'm glad to see that some of you did. Um, the rest of you are going to get a chance to, to actually do it this week because that's going to simply be my exhortation for us again this week in a way, but with a little bit different context. So throughout all of Scripture, Abraham is presented to us as this, this very significant figure. It's because he believed the promises of God and then he lived accordingly. He acted based on the promises that God made for him. That is why, it's, that's what's credited to him as righteousness, his faith and his following, those things. And so for us, the example for Abraham is to believe the things God gives us and then to act them out, to live according to these promises. So these chapters today, chapter 13 and 14, are actually cram-packed full of awesome stuff. We're not going to look at all of them. We're only going to look at this very tiny section of chapter 14. 
there's a lot of interesting things. I think that there's a lot in here that will bless us as a people. But in order to understand the context, well, understand the message of what's in these verses that we read, chapters, or verses 17 through 24, it's really helpful if we pull back out and look at a bigger picture of what's happening in chapter 14. Because we start with, after the return of the defeat of Kedileomer and the kings. So what happened there? That's just kind of a random place to drop in. What happened? What, what was there, a battle or something? Well, of course, yes, there was a battle. It was the battle of nine armies. Um, and so we uh, are going to just let me give a 30,000-foot view of what happens in Genesis 14 that sets us up for what we see here, this interaction between Abram, Melchizedek, and Bera, who is the king of Sodom. So there's five local city-states, Sodom, Gomorrah, and three others that we see in the beginning of chapter 14. And they decide that they're going to throw off the fealty that they have to larger empires that are very far away. So I think we have a graphic for this, James. So this graphic came from the Armstrong Institute of Biblical Archaeology. And this kind of gives us an understanding of where in the world these places are that are taking, that are taking place in chapter 14. So the kingdoms of Elam and Sumer and the old Hittite kingdom, which is referred to earlier in the chapter by a different name. These are the places that we're talking about. This is where the guys came from, and they came down into the Jordan Valley. Kings, Sodom, Gomorrah, Zeboim, Adma, and Zoar. And so these guys decide they're going to come back, and they're going to reconquer the land that has decided to throw them off or try to throw them off. So go to the next slide, James. So these four kings decide they're going to come and deal with this uprising of these five kings. This is basically their track. They come in on the northeast side. They work their way down around the land of Canaan, go all the way down into El Paran, come back up, and then they have battle with Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is something that we see in the text. Um, During this battle, Sodom and Gomorrah are defeated. There's not a lot of details given, but they ran away. That's what it says. They ran away. So it must not have gone well. Their great desire for throwing off their patriarchal overlords failed miserably. And there were many people captured and taken away, including Lot, who was Abram's nephew, who came with him and his father from Ur, and then from, came with Abram to Canaan from Haran. And so Abram, when he finds out that his nephew Lot has been taken, he chases after them, and he chases them all the way from what's here on the map called Mamre, or Abram's home, and goes all the way up north to where it says Abram's attack at the town of Dan, and then he chases them all the way up to this town called Hobah. Now, interestingly, the place that these foreign invaders come from is the place that Abram and Lot are from. They came from Ur of the Chaldees. That's their original homeland. So they're being attacked by people that they know pretty well, theoretically. They're people from that part of the world that they came from. And so Abram decides to attack and try to recover Lot and recover the things that were taken from Sodom and Gomorrah. He does. He's successful. And that's where we pick up in our chapter here. Um, This is the first armed conflict that we see in the Bible. Uh, it's where, and it's the first time that we see one of, the, one of the people of the Lord successful in combat, conquering someone. It's also, um, 
significant that this is the first time we don't read it here, but we see that Abraham is referred to as a Hebrew, referring to the fact that he is from the people of Eber, who was one of Shem's descendants. It's also interesting that the distance that these guys traveled to kind of reclaim their little territory here in Canaan was approximately 1,500 miles. That's about how far they came by foot, at least up until where Abram left them after he drove them out of the land. That's basically from here to Denver. That's how far they walked to get to this place. And I don't know about you, but I don't particularly care enough to march an entire army and spend months and months on foot to get to Denver to quash a little uprising. Maybe if I was the king of Elam, I would. But that's the context of where we're at. So it's a significant thing that Abram traveled approximately something like 300-ish miles himself and probably took several weeks to win this victory. That leads us back to verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Ketelaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley of Sheva, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek came out. This is the king of Salem. He brought out bread and wine. We learn that he was the priest of, the most, of God Most High. And he blessed Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abraham, give him a tenth. And the king of Sodom comes and he, he says his piece. But rather than coming and giving something, bringing a victory feast and offering the best that he had, and blessing Abram and blessing God, this guy, whose name is Bera, we learn, says, give me the people that you brought back. You can take the stuff. Seems a little ungrateful. Some commentators want to say that he was extremely ungrateful and a little grumpy, even though his stuff has been reclaimed and he's been brought back to him. Others want to say he was being very generous. Either way, Abram's response to him is really striking. He says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, the God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. So here we see that Abram attaches the the proper name of God, Yahweh, to God most high. He's emphasized this and made a really clear delineation, a very clear line in the sand. I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Something that we see earlier in chapter 14 is that Sodom, or sorry, in, uh, in 13, is that Sodom was a very wicked place. The men practiced wickedness. They were known for their sin. So by Abram saying that he was going to have nothing to do with this king, he was making a statement that morally I will have nothing to do with you. I will not be in alliance with you. So, That's the context. That's where we're at. If you haven't spent much time in your Bible, the name Melchizedek may not mean much to you. And yet this morning, we've all talked about it from the stage. So he seems to be significant from our point of view, but why? Why is he significant? Well, D.A. Carson said, the figure of Melchizedek turns out to be one of the most instructive figures in the Bible for helping us put our Bibles together. That is a pretty remarkable statement to be said of a guy that we hear about only three times in the entire Bible. The figure Melchizedek 
turns out to be one of the most instructive figures in the Bible for helping us put our Bibles together. So a lot of time has been spent, a lot of ink has been spilled by a lot of different people, fans of the Bible, not fans of the Bible, talking about who this guy is. Who is Melchizedek? I want to try to help us understand who he is and why he's important to us. Because he is important to us. We have two points for today. They're simply questions. Why was Melchizedek significant to Abram? And why is Melchizedek significant to us? So let's try to answer those questions. We can answer why Melchizedek was significant to Abraham by just examining this text for us briefly. Well, first of all, we learn in Hebrews, and we'll talk more about this later, but his name tells us that he is the king of righteousness. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It says that he is the king of Salem. That word Salem means peace. We think that more than likely the city Salem that it's referring to is actually Jerusalem. So, he's the pre-Israelite king of Jerusalem, long before the Israelites ever come, and his name means king of righteousness. This is significant because in contrast to the kings that were surrounding them, these kings that have decided that they're going to rebel against the fealty that they have to these other outside kings, and the kings that we are told in Scripture are wicked and known for their wickedness and their great sin, it's significant that he comes out and invites fellowship with Abram. This man is a king and a priest. Abram is a sojourner. And while he's been promised the land, he doesn't have an official holding of it yet. So this man, who seems to be the only righteous one in the bunch, has offered fellowship to Abram. And he's honored him. And he's brought out bread and wine to celebrate with him. They would have known each other because where Abram lived, just a little bit north of Hebron, is very close in proximity to Salem. And so they probably knew each other. We don't know exactly how long Abraham was in the area before all this went down, but they probably knew who each other were. So the fact that this king comes out and offers fellowship to Abram is significant. He is blessed by, from God Most High. So this, this king is a priest. He's a priest of God Most High, and he comes out and he offers Abram a blessing, which is significant to Abraham for a couple of reasons. One, because he has made some significant life choices and significant life changes to leave everything that he knew to take on a lifestyle that he wasn't as familiar with in the hope of a promise that was made to him by God. He's, he's moved into a foreign country, he's left his family, and he's starting over in this new place. And he's just recently been separated from the only family that he had close by, Lot. And so now he's kind of all on his own, and this king blesses him, reminding him that God is the one who is with him. In fact, it says, right in his blessing, Blessed be Abraham, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. This is Abram acting in the faith that he had, he was trusting the Lord for this place, and so he acted out. He went to get what was his that was taken from him. He drove inv invaders out of the land that was supposed to be his and his, in his inheritance. So he's acting in faith, and here God is reminding him through this priest king that God is with him, 
And in fact, God is the one that won the victory for him. This massive invading force that came and conquered everybody around them, and yet Abraham chases them down and wins and gets all the stuff back. That is significant because God is reminding Abraham through this activity that he's blessing him. He's still with him. In response to this blessing, Abraham offers offers a tithe. He tithes toward his trust. So far, in our why is Melchizedek significant to Abraham, he's significant because he offers fellowship with the righteous king of peace. He is blessed by God and the righteous king of peace. He responds by giving a tithe, a tenth. He gives a tenth of what he received. This is the first time that we see a tithe referenced in the Bible. I didn't mention this earlier, but it is significant that because we are in a series called Right from the Start, another reason why Melchizedek is significant to us is because this is the first priest that we see in Genesis. It's the first reference of a priest in the Bible. It's the only reference to a priest in Genesis. Unless you count the Egyptian priest of On, who was the father-in-law of Joseph. But we're not going to count him, because I don't want to. (laughs) So Melchizedek is significant to us because he is the only priest referenced in Genesis, the first priest referenced in the Bible. And so because of this position that he has, Abram honors him with a tithe. Tithing is first and foremost an act of worship. It reminds the giver that they actually owe everything to the receiver. It is a recognition of that fact. It doesn't come from a place of debt. As far as we know, Abram didn't owe Melchizedek anything. It comes from a place of gratitude and of joy. And in this case, we can certainly read this as God is receiving a tithe from Abraham because this priest is mediating that. So Abraham is offering a tithe of what he has in thanksgiving to God, the possessor of heaven and earth, who has defeated this, who's won this victory for him. And as we look about tithing, and we think about that in our own lives, this is how we ought to think about it. It is gratitude from a place of joy, offering back to someone who has everything, who has everything already, the possessor of heaven and earth. The next thing that's significant, and the two points kind of go together, we see that Abraham makes this really dramatic statement. He raised his hand to God Most High, the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Raising his hand. He wasn't, he wasn't asking to be called on. He wasn't taking attendance. So what was he doing? It's an oath. He was making an oath. In the Trinity Confession of Faith, I think we have this. James, do we have this? We do. In the Trinity Confession of Faith, we have a chapter on oaths and vows. Teach us how we think we should understand oaths and vows in Scripture. So chapter 25, section 1, an oath is a part of a a religious worship in which a person swearing in truth, righteousness, and judgment solemnly calls God to witness what he promises and to judge him according to the truth or falseness of it. We're going to skip the next one, James. We're not to take oaths carelessly. We are not asking the Lord because we are not to take them carelessly because we are asking the Lord to judge us according to how well we do. 
we are saying to the Lord, hold me accountable for the decision that I'm making. So Abraham here is saying, I raise my hand that I will not take anything from the king of Sodom, from the king of wickedness. Hebrews 6, 16 tells us, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So Abraham is making it very clear, in no uncertain terms, lying in the sand, I will have nothing to do with this man or with this way of life. And in that way, he rejected wickedness in no uncertain terms. So he's raised his hand and he's held his hand out. He's saying, I will have nothing to do with this. God help me. God hold me accountable. I'm putting all of my faith in you, Lord. I'm trusting you with everything. Help me. You have blessed me. This is what I want. I swear not to have anything to do with this. And as we think about our relationship and our identity with the world, this should be our posture. I raise my hand to God Most High. I will have nothing to do with this. We are identifying with Christ. We are unidentifying with the world. And so Abraham sees this Melchizedek figure, this priest king, and he is significant to to Abram because he offers fellowship, the fellowship of the righteous king and and the king of peace. He is offering him and inviting him into fellowship. He blesses him in the name of God. He receives a tithe unto the Lord, and he witnesses Abram's decision. I will not have anything to do with the world. I trust the Lord. So when we consider that Melchizedek sees all of this stuff, this is important to us. It's important to us in the context of this chapter. Abram is claiming the promises that God has made for him. He is trusting them. He's owning them, and he's making life choices based on them. He's drawn a line in the sand. He's kind of eliminated these guys as an option. But the Lord is going to bless him. And he has and he will. But now, I think Melchizedek represents something more. And in fact, Scripture tells us that Melchizedek represents something much more. And I think that Abraham maybe had a glimpse of that. Whether he did or whether he didn't, we're going to imagine. Just like in the movie, we get the zoom in on the guy's face. He's looking off into the distance. And then you get inside of his brain and it just like blows out. And you see this great big picture. Now we're going to do that. We're zooming out. 30,000 foot view, buckle up, we're going high. We're going to look at what Melchizedek means to us. Certainly, the fact that Abraham, the father of our faith, that he meant these things to him were significant for us. But what else does it mean? So the next priest that we see, we already talked about, is the king of On, we're not counting him, or the, the priest of On, we're not counting him. The next priest that we see is Jethro, who is the father-in-law of Moses in Exodus. So we're, we're not going to spend too much time looking at him, but he is the next priest that we're going to count. He and Melchizedek have some similarities, but we'll talk about them in a minute. Melchizedek himself, I said, only shows up two other times in Scripture. They are Psalm 110 and Hebrews 7. Actually, Hebrews 5 through 7, but 
Hebrews 7 is where we hear him talked about. So we're going to look at those texts. Turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 110. If you don't want to turn, you can just look at the screen. We'll cheat for you. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That may sound familiar to you. And then down in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Interesting. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's interesting that Jesus actually refers to this psalm when he's talking with the Pharisees and asking them, who do you think the Messiah is? They say, well, he's the son of David. And Jesus pulls this psalm out and says, but right here, it says, the Lord said to my Lord. So if he's the son of David, how can David be saying he's my Lord? That doesn't make sense. So, of course, they're caught. But what's significant is that Jesus is identifying himself with this psalm. The Lord says to my Lord. So the context is that one of David's descendants will be greater than he is. And he'll be a priest, it says, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, this matters for David in the context, and we'll look at this because when David is alive, there were no priest kings, at least not in Israel. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. We're going to look at Hebrews 7 now. So you can turn to Hebrews 7. Keep going to the right in your Bible, or we'll cheat again for you. On the screen, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abram apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was that this, that to whom Abram, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. Interestingly here, the author of Hebrews is reminding us twice that Abram offered tithes to Melchizedek. So it carries through that significance of tithing, that worship, that honoring somebody with something that, they, that, you, have, that you have received, giving back. This passage here leaves us with a lot of questions. Okay, well, it says he's without father or mother. It says he has no genealogy. It says he doesn't have a beginning of days nor an end of life. He resembles the Son of God. He's a priest forever. The Bible is full of weird stuff. That is a weird stuff. So what is, who is Melchizedek? Well, some people think that Melchizedek is Shem, the son of Noah. There's an argument made that because he was so old, during the time of Abram, it could have been him. He was righteous. He was the son of Noah. So the righteous line. Maybe it was Shem. Well, the problem with that is Shem has a genealogy. He has a birth date. He has a death date. We know that, so it can't be him. He's also never identified as a priest or a king. So it's not Shem. Interestingly enough, though, Shem was alive 30 years after Abram died. So Shem was the oldest guy on the earth at this point. He's still alive. So another theory. Maybe it's a Christophany. 
Maybe it's Jesus appearing in human form prior to his incarnation as Jesus. Some people want to say that that is the way that this this text in Hebrews leads us to believe. I think that the author of Hebrews is actually trying to draw a comparison to Melchizedek because Melchizedek drops into Genesis 14 so randomly. We don't see his birthday. We don't see his death date. We know that he's a priest, and as far as we see in Genesis, he's priest forever because he never dies. So it's a, it's a type. I think Hebrews is trying to present Melchizedek as a type. Some people think that he was an angel. Certain groups of the more radical Jewish, um, Jewish communities um, posted that he was some special angelic being. One interesting theory was that he was the nephew of Noah, who was born from the corpse of his mother, kind of fully alive and fully clothed, kind of like a weird Benjamin Button situation. He was taken to the Garden of Eden, where he somehow survived the flood, and, and then he was dropped back into the, uh, the post-Diluvian era, and, and that's who Melchizedek is. The Bible is full of weird stuff. That is not one of the weird stuffs. So what does that leave us with? I think that Melchizedek was a priest king of Canaan. He was a man. That's my interpretation of it. But he's so much more, and we'll talk about why. So in a sermon that he preached, D.A. Carson, we're going to quote him again on Psalm 110, he said this, most of the controlling themes in the Bible are not, do not resonate very well with the dominant secular culture of the West. For that, matter, for that matter, with many other cultures as well. Think through many of the controlling categories. Covenants, priests, sacrifices, blood offerings, Passover, Messiah, King, Day of Atonement, Jubilee, I'm going to borrow D.A. Carson's joke, but there aren't that many people walking down the street of Apex going, I wonder when the next year of Jubilee is. It's not something we think about. As Carson explains, priests and kings are among Scripture's many controlling themes that do not resonate with Western culture. Priesthood is a strange notion to to our secular sensibilities. Moreover, kingship, particularly Scripture's notion of kingship, is mostly a foreign concept in a postmodern, anti-institutional, autonomy-loving society. We're Americans. We got rid of the king. We don't want any of that. Or do we? In his book, The Royal Priest, Matthew Emhadi quotes Crispin Fletcher Lewis. Lots of names, I'm sorry, but the quote is important. Here it is. Priesthood has been marginalized in modern biblical studies. For the modern age of Kantian rationalism, the cultic affairs of priestcraft were nothing more than ancient fiction. In a world of electric light and radios, still more mobile phones and the internet, an office that claims access to the divine realm had to be the product of an unenlightened age or the attempt of power-hungry individuals to using religion to gain power in society. The theology of priesthood in the Bible has taken a backseat to its history. So we know about priests. We have a category for them, but do we understand why they're important to us? We know what the office of priest represents and means. Well, to understand 
how Melchizedek as priest king matters to us, we need to understand how priests matter and who they are and how kings matter and who they are. So we'll dive into priests first. A priest is someone who represents God, who ministers on behalf of God, who's a mediator between God and man. As we see in Genesis, Adam is actually the first person who fills this type of a role. He's a mediator to creation of God. He's been given a commandment. He's been given a place to rule and to keep. He's been told to go out and expand and make more. He is a priest king figure. Now, as we all know, Adam failed. And so from that point on, not everybody could be a priest king or a priest to the God Most High, as was God's intention, we'll find later. Not everyone could be, but only certain people, God's ordained types, categories. And so Noah is the next one, and Abraham follows him. These guys represent Christ. They have covenants that are made with them, like Adam. They build altars to the Lord, establishing places of worship. And they try to carry out the same sort of command that God gave to Adam. Go out, multiply, make my name great in the world. Go here, I'm giving this to you. Go here and make my name great. And so they do. In a very real way, yes, so now we get to Jethro. After Melchizedek, we see Jethro. This is the next example of a king or a kingly figure that is a priest that isn't directly identified to Aaron or an official priesthood. The similarities between Melchizedek and Jethro are significant. They are both greeted by these patriarchs. Moses comes and greets Jethro. He bows and kisses him. Jethro blesses the Lord for delivering Egypt from, or delivering Israel from Egypt. He offers burnt offerings and sacrifices on behalf of Egypt to the Lord, and he gives a fellowship meal to the leaders of Israel. But it's at this point that the separation of priest and king becomes very distinct, kind of with Moses and Aaron. Moses as the judge and the magisterial king figure, and Aaron as the first high priest. It's important that we note that Moses was not a king. He was not a king of Israel, but he filled this type of judge and ruler. In Exodus 19, this is what the Lord says to his people. If you will keep, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now this is following up on the covenant he's made to Abram. This is his offspring that he's reestablishing in the land. He's preparing them to go in and, and claim the land finally that he promised Abram. And this is what he says to them. If you keep my commandments and you obey my voice, my, my covenant, if you keep my covenant, you'll be my treasured possession among all peoples. You will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This harkens us back to Adam. He wants a kingdom of people who know him and can communicate with him one-on-one, representing him. So Adam and, sorry, Moses and Aaron are at this point separate the roles of priest king. We see them officially moved out here under the law. And that's significant because God decides that he's going to dwell with mankind. He's going to make his place among the people of Israel. And so now he needs to set up protections and ways for his people to interact with him while he's in their midst. It's a huge step for mankind. He's choosing to live with them. So God establishes the priesthood and the covenant with his people. He instructs them to build a tabernacle. 
The tabernacle is a place for God to dwell while he's in the presence of the people. What's significant about the tabernacle is that the earthly tabernacle reflects a heavenly one, and on earth it acts kind of like a shield, actually, for the people, protecting them from God's holiness while he's in their midst. And the priests are to be the mediators of this covenant, to be the ones who represent God to the people and who represent the people to God. In Deuteronomy 18, the Levitical priests are spoken of this way. The Lord says, They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. When they come into the land, they will not have a part with the people, with the rest of the tribes. They have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. For the Lord, your God, has chosen him out of all of your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. So here we see that Levite and the Levitical priests were set up to receive offerings, tithes from the people, and that was their livelihood. We see tithes again. This was their livelihood that the Lord gave to them. The Lord said, they don't get land, they get me. I am the inheritance of Levi. They are my chosen ministers. So this is who the priests were. This is what they were set up to be. Mediators between God and man of this this covenant that he's given to Moses. But what happened to the kings? Because if we see the priests are separated out, what happened to the kings? Well, Moses was a sort of a king. He was a kingly figure. He was a judge. And from Moses to 1 Samuel, or to Samuel, in 1 Samuel, um, we have judges in the land. They are the king type. They don't rule the people, but they represent God, and they hold the people accountable to the the Lord's commands. However, the Lord did make an allowance for kings in his law. In Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, we're going to just read one verse. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it, dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. God says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. The first time we see them choosing this is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel is the last judge. The people have said, we don't want your sons to be rulers over us, to judge us. We want a king like the nations around us. And so God says to them, Samuel, don't be worried. They're rejecting me. They're not rejecting you. And Samuel warns them, if you put a king over yourself, you're rejecting God as your ruler, as your head. And this was actually a rebuke to the people of Israel because they wanted a king. They didn't want God. They wanted a human mediator, not a divine one. They wanted a judge over them who would go before them and fight in their battles. From a historical standpoint, there is no evidence that any of Israel's kings held the office of priest. The Mosaic and Davidic covenants separate the office of priesthood and kingship not allowing the king and the priest to encroach upon one another's jurisdiction. In 1 Samuel, the first king, Saul, tried to take on the mantle of priest after he'd been appointed king. We we can read that in 1 Samuel 13. 
So Saul, bringing the burnt offering, said, bring the burnt offering to me and the peace offerings and offer the burnt offering. And he offered the burnt offerings. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came. And Samuel went to meet him. And Saul went to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he has commanded you. And then he says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept the command of the Lord. We later find out that that man, after God's own heart, is David. Is David a priest king? No, David is not a priest king. David wants to build a temple for the Lord. And the Lord tells him, no, I don't want you to do it. I have a better idea. And so in 1 Chronicles 17, he says this to David. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. Then it says, I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. So this is the promise that God makes to David. One of your offspring, I will, I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever. Now we see that Solomon actually builds the house of the, the temple of the Lord. But I don't think he was only talking about Solomon here. In fact, I believe that it was this promise that God made to David that inspired David to write Psalm 110. Psalm 110, again, you may remember, says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make an en your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now David knew his Bible. As a king, he was commanded to write a copy of it for himself and to keep it with him always. And we know that he knew the Lord and he knew the word. And so when David was thinking, what kind of a priest or what kind of a king would this be, this offspring of mine who's going to build a temple and be confirmed in the house of the Lord and rule over the Lord's kingdom? What kind of man will that be? Because we have priests and I'm a king and we're not allowed to intermix. And then he thinks back to, the, to Genesis and he goes, but there was a guy, his name was Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a priest king. And so he says, there will come one after me, will be greater than me, who will be of the order of Melchizedek. He will be a priest king. He will bring back the role of priest and king together. He'll combine them. So we see that Saul tried to do this, and David would know that Saul tried to do it and failed. So why would he be thinking this is the, this is the solution? Well, God promised it to him. We see later one of David's offspring also tries what Paul attempted. A very good king, King Uzziah, did many great things for the name of the Lord, and then he grew proud, and he tried to offer incense in the temple for the Lord, and he was struck with leprosy. God was not ready in the time of Uzziah for him to be the priest king after the order of Melchizedek. Much later, after the kingdoms of Israel and Judah have been demolished, they've been taken away and laid waste to the same people that came and infiltrated the land that Abram was, was dealing with, same off, their, their descendants. Now they're coming back. They're coming back to the land of Judah. They're rebuilding the temple. They're rebuilding Jerusalem. And God makes this promise through the, through the, the prophet Zechariah. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, 
I will bring my servant, the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set up before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its description. Inscription describes, declares the Lord. I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. Joshua, the high priest, he's talking about a servant named the branch. And in his day, he will remove iniquity from the land. A little bit later in Zechariah, Zechariah 6, we see this amazing imagery. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Zadok, the high priest. Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. This servant, the branch, who is the branch? The shoot of Jesse and David, Jesus. Joshua, the priest. What does Joshua mean? Joshua means God saves. That name, Joshua, in Hebrew is Yeshua. Yeshua is the name that Jesus took. Here we see that there will be a person who comes, that, that David has said will be of the order of Melchizedek, and he will rule from the, from the temple. The crown shall be in the temple of the Lord. And Jesus draws attention to this Psalm 110 again when he's talking to the Pharisees. We've already talked about that. He's identified himself with this Psalm of David. That there will be a Lord of David who will be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And so we see that there is this priest-king imagery that's promised right before we launch into the New Testament. In Hebrews 5, verses 4 and 10, no one takes this honor of priesthood for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by God, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Though he was a son, he learned obedience through his suffering. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Zechariah 3, in that day I will remove all iniquity from the land. Here it says, being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. A new covenant has been made. Because, remember, God's design was for a people who would know him one to one. Adam was the first type. He failed. More types, more examples, priests and kings to represent God on earth. In Exodus 19, we've already read this, it says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. You shall be to me a kingdom and a priest, kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God wants a nation of priests. He wants a people of priests. Jeremiah 31, 31, 
We read, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. In 1 Peter 2, we read this. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who calls you out of darkness into marvelous light. And so the question is, why is Melchizedek significant to us? Melchizedek is significant to us because he is the first priest king. He represents the future priest king, the one who will establish for us a way back to God. Melchizedek is significant to us because he sets up for us the one who will come. He offers us fellowship and a victor's meal. We just took it. We just had it. He offers that to us, fellowship, and he blesses us. He gives us blessings and promises and says, take these. These are mine. Live in these truths. Own them for yourself. Make them yours and live in my name. Be to me a people, a royal priesthood. It's precisely because Melchizedek was a king and a priest that he is one of the most instructive figures in the Bible for helping us put our Bibles together. In Hebrews 7, Hebrews 5, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. It matters because Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the one who sits in the true temple, having washed us with his own blood as our perfect sacrifice. The tabernacle that was set up and the, temp the curtain that was there has been torn in two. From heaven to earth, God has reestablished fellowship with his people. The Holy of Holies has flooded the whole earth. And now there's a high priest who's there to mediate for us on our behalf. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. He is our strong and perfect plea. Chris, you can bring the team up. He is our strong and our perfect plea. Just like the Levites, just like Abraham, our inheritance is Christ. He says, you will be my inheritance. I am giving myself to you, and I'm claiming you for myself to be priests and kings with Christ, to rule and to reign. So, since we have such a great high priest... Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. Stand. Stand. We are a royal priesthood and a chosen nation, a people for his own possession that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into a marvelous Light.